Hello and welcome to a new episode of Braincast, the student-run podcast aiming to showcase the breadth of innovation and creativity being conducted in both psychology and neuroscience across the University of Sussex and further afield. Today, our host Angus Thane speaks with Dr. Isuke Koya, a reader in behavioural neuroscience at the University of Sussex and a visiting investigator at Scripps Research in San Diego. In this episode, he talks to us about appetitive associations between food rewards and the cues that predict their availability. I suppose a good first question, one that I ask everyone, is how did you how did you first become interested in neuroscience specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I could trace it back to when I was nine years old, um, and my teacher, school teacher, told me to um, watch a documentary about the brain on the TV, and uh, this is maybe back in 1984 or so. Yeah. Um, and it was quite fascinating because they were talking about how, you know, we, the senses in the world are being processed, um, trying to answer questions like, why do we dream? What happens mm-hmm. in the brain when we dream? And somehow I think that sparked my interest. Um, yeah, I could really trace it to that. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, for a lot of people, neuroscience is unique in that it can tackle those sort of intangible things like dreams and sensations and stuff in a way that other science other life science can't really um it's quite a uniquely human science i think it is and because it somehow helps us understand our mind the way we behave that we sense the world it's might be easier to get into or at least for me it was yeah Mm, yeah. (laughs) it was a natural pull yeah Yeah, i think that makes sense (laughs) i think that um also ties in quite well to um some of your uh, career around drugs and things is that often they're a very you know, human-centric mm-hmm. kind of you know it's related to experience yeah. and things like that and so I think that's another facet of how neuroscience is useful in that you can study perceptual things like that which you can't really do in, a, in another sense um, yeah so <clears throat> what um so obviously it's a it's always a tricky question to ask someone to summarize their mm-hmm. PhD um, but what what would you how would you sum up your PhD, yeah. uh, what, what did you study briefly? So one of the things we did uh, when I was a PhD student at the Free University of Amsterdam was using an animal model, try to find out how um, rats process cues, or these are signals which are related to um, heroin experiences as well as sucrose consumption, and to expose them to such cues using a particular behavioral task and find out which brain areas are activated. And back then, um, when I did this project around 2004, 2005, the hot topic was how do do drugs activate the brain differently from natural rewards? Mm -hmm. So naturally, an extension of that was how do cues or signals associated with drugs versus natural rewards differentially activate the brain? And there were some interesting human studies based on that um, MRI study some years earlier showing that drugs, cocaine-associated stimuli would activate the brain differently from, let's say, erotic stimuli. It was kind of a cool study. I thought that they had a control for that, and they were saying, indeed, drugs activate, cues activate a particular uh, brain more in the prefrontal cortex. Um, The thing about the animal studies was that we could use biochemical techniques and look at these activity-regulated genes called immediate early genes, which you've probably heard about in drugs brain behavior, yeah. (laughs) So these are genes that are expressed pretty fast within minutes, and they might 
their activity marker, but they can also tell you what might be going on in neurons. For example, these are our particular uh, signal transduction cascade that's being activated in neurons are more genes going to be trans transcribed in the future and so on. Um, so we were using these immediate early genes um, using a technique called quantitative PCR or real-time PCR to determine their levels of immediate early genes. And we basically found that with cues associated with heroin, um, the more some more activity in the medial prefrontal cortex compared to cues associated with sucrose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when rats were exposed to uh, sort of, you could say, memories or you know, stimuli associated mm -hmm. with a drug that activates a different part of their brain to memories associated with a, a sugar reward, um, what sort of implications does that have for, for what, what did that inform, you know, Essentially, what's the what's the main kind of takeaway? Yeah, from, from the take-home message from that would be because we measured these, this Q exposure and the brain activation some weeks after the rats last took sucrose or heroin, kind of shows you that these memories are very long-lasting, and they could be more robust with drugs of abuse. Mm -hmm. I mean, hence you know if you look at someone who use drugs for many years, they're not going to forget about the memories or cues associated with the drug. So if you look at a smoker, they're never going to forget what that ashtray was about or mm -hmm. the feeling of lighting up their first cigarette in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be the main message. Yeah. And I suppose that has a, that has obviously has a big implication for um, people trying to, you know, quit smoking, for instance, or any drug of abuse. Yeah. Um, because obviously if those memories are so um, sort of form in a different way and yeah. they're so long lasting yeah. that can make it really hard to stop that reinforcing kind of behavior I suppose yeah yeah, yeah and it's I would say it's in a in way for addiction it's an unfortunate thing that they're so robust so long lasting and quote hard to shake off um, you know it's it's a different kind of memory from when we learn the biochemical pathways like the Krebs cycle mm -hmm. where you study it and maybe you'll know it for the test but then some days later, you already forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I sometimes wish some of the memories, like out of the papers I've read, would stay long like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder, that's interesting. Yeah. Actually, I wonder if there's a there's a potential avenue of research there, in that if there was some way you could kind of trick the brain into forming memories that are as strong for non drug associated rewards as they are for drug associated yeah. rewards. That's an interesting line of inquiry isn't it maybe yeah that would be good yeah that would be handy at <laughs> yeah. Least. yeah perhaps i think one way to do it is to make these if you were to make something really salient by adding rewards to it if someone were to say i'll give you a million pounds if you study the crime cycle and retain it for a long time <laughs> that'd be nice <laughs> that that euphoria might make you <laughs> remember that information better i think that would have made my undergrad a yeah lot that's easier. right it's yeah. a very costly way to do it yeah it, it might definitely. work yeah definitely yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was uh, that was your PhD, and you're saying that's at the the Free University in yeah. Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. um, PhDs are always uh, everybody has a, a different story for their PhDs, but most people yeah. universally agree that they're quite they're quite difficult. Um, yeah. What what would you say you found? Uh, was there an aspect of your PhD that you found particularly difficult, especially since you'd moved to yeah. Amsterdam from the United States? Yeah. 
was there anything in particular you found tricky from that aspect or what, um, what would you say was difficult? Not too tricky living in Amsterdam. It's quite a global city. Mm-hmm. It's a very open-minded city. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like being in Brighton. Um, so in that sense, there's not too much to quote adjust to. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite enjoyed my life there. Um, of course, the weather <laughs> was not ideal sometimes. Um, but yeah, I don't think there was too much to adjust to except one cultural difference is that compared to Americans or even the British, the Dutch are more straightforward, honest, and direct mm-hmm. in their discussions. So that was kind of a surprising thing in the beginning. That they'll tell you straight to your face, I don't agree, but you shouldn't take any offense to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's them basically saying, this is where I stand. And that's we like to read each other that way in a more straightforward manner. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, generally it was life was very good there. Um, as for my PhD, I think the most difficult thing was for some years, um, my experimental findings were negative, which basically means the data you collect do not support your hypothesis. For example, if you say, you know, I hypothesize that you know the stimuli will activate these brain areas, um, and they just don't. Yes, that's that's a scientific method, but for publishing your findings, negative findings are generally difficult to publish. And um, that was quite um, demoralizing at times. Mm. So yeah, I really had to be persistent. Um, there were moments, I'll be honest, where I felt like, oh, I almost feel like quitting because it's, <laughs> it's really tiring because mm. you do put in a lot of hours into it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. So if you were to give... Uh, a piece of advice to a, an aspiring PhD student. Yeah. Maybe it would be related to that that persistence yeah. in the face of not failure, but not getting results that back up what you're what you're looking for. That kind of negative results. Yeah. 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 Be persistent. Be persistent in the face of adversity, fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, while working smart, as in, you know, don't. If an experiment's not going to work, you better change your methods, for example, or you need to optimize things that you need to be smart about. Um, but be, be very patient. Science just, these experiments can take a long time. Um, you have to learn how to optimize experimental conditions, work with various people, work as a team. It's a steep learning curve. Um, you, in the end, it's kind of worth it and because you also grow as a human being. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, so did you also ask about advice? Yeah so, yeah, so if you were to give, if you had one piece of advice, or sort of one sort of back of the envelope, sort of, you know, really pithy piece of advice, yeah. what, what I do you think? I would definitely say choose a mentor who is ex- very supportive, i.e. is willing to kind of guide you through the process and then wants to truly develop you on an intellectual level, mm-hmm. um, like stimulate you. Um, make sure that your project is going to work out. Well, you can't, there's no 100% guarantee, but lowering the risk, but yet still coming up with something novel that everyone wants to find, like learn about your findings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really is key, because once you have that, I think you, you're kind of set to the right path, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think, I think that's good advice. Yeah. Um, so... Moving on past mm-hmm. your PhD, yeah. after that you get to um, start as a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what was it like to go from that jump from kind of the you're just a you know a lowly in air quotes PhD student to then graduate and then get to start as a yeah. you know full time researcher as a postdoc? What what was that experience like? Was there anything uh, you didn't expect so much or? Um, yeah, well, one thing that was, it was kind of an exciting phase in my scientific career. Um, one, it was, I felt like I had more, you know, I was still doing science, doing experiments. Um, but the project I was working on, it felt like at that time was going on the forefront, which was to, you know, uh, basically silence these uh, neurons that were activated by, let's say, drug-associated stimuli remove them to see are they really involved in a particular drug-induced behavior it was like science fiction but i, I got to work on that project mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was quite exciting um i had to work with that at that at that time under two mentors who i had two projects going on in parallel the amount and pace of work in my first two years felt like a lot i had to adjust very very fast um at some point I got used to it, but yeah, it did feel intense. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet it was not. Yeah. It's not so easy when you've got two projects at once. That's, yeah, that's a lot of work. Yeah. So um, when you just start as a postdoc, yeah, and then you know, obviously there's the process of going through that phase to to having your own your own lab yeah. and your own group mm-hmm. doing your own uh, research. Um, it's always this is always a tricky question because obviously there's lots of things going on, but. Um, how would you summarize your main research interests in your lab? The main, the main kind of questions you're interested in answering or the, the main things you're interested in? Yeah, so um, basically as a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, we were very interested in how um, the brain actually represents information related to drug and the cues that predict are associated with that drug experience, so these so-called drug cue associations. Uh, when I came to Sussex, I realized, you know, it, it, as much as it was interesting to study um, how the drug stores those kind of memories, the drug cue associations retrieves them, somehow I think our brains really did evolve to store memories about things like food, which are very important for our survival. Um, and I thought, well, why not study how the brain establishes Um, and retrieves associations related to uh, food and the cues that predict food availability. And somehow that became fascinated. And I think coming here, like you're surrounded by nature, the Sussex Downs, and just saw a lot more wild animals, Mm -hmm. wild birds, badgers. (laughs) And you do think like, wow, how did they survive in the wild? And I somehow got more fascinated with that. And even these little garden birds squirrels come to my office too so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the perfect environment for that but we are um, interested in how these associations are established and retrieved in the brain and we look at these specialized group of neurons called neuronal ensembles which are just a few percentage of these neurons in the brain which are activated by stimuli such as food associated cues and we are wondering um, you know which brain areas contain those ensembles. If they do, how are they regulated once we update these associations? So let's say normally this cue might predict food availability, but what happens when the cue no longer predicts that food availability? 
Um, and that's called extinction learning when we form those inhibitory associations and suppress those responses to those cues. Um, so that's what we're interested in. We look at the nucleus accumbens, which is a brain area implicated in reward, things like triggering motivation and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you've sort of, you ended up kind of going back to sort of more basic, sort of the underlying process. So you kind of, you started with drugs of abuse yeah. and then ended up looking at, well, it, the, the way those cue, those associations mm-hmm. form is very similar to food. Why not look at food yeah. directly? Yeah. yeah, that's really going back to the, to the basics. And it's, I find it equally interesting and uh, you still, it still has a lot of relevance to things like drug addiction because that's also a, you know, drugs are also rewards. Mm-hmm. You know, they activate the brain very differently from natural rewards, but you also form those kind of associations with those drugs and cues. And um, if you understand the basic principles behind that, I think we could better understand conditions like addiction in which these learned associations are involved. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you give us an overview of kind of the what, what's the most, if you had to pick, the most yeah. exciting project going on in your in your lab at the moment related to that um, those interests? What would you say? Yeah. So I'd say, well, I'll just talk about the current stuff that was going on that I'm quite excited about. <laughs> so, so one of them is looking at a phenomenon called uh, cue potentiated feeding. So as the name suggests. Um, it's when food-associated cues basically trigger you to eat more than you really need to, even when you're sated. Mm-hmm. Now, this has been shown in humans. Uh, Martin Yeomans, together with colleague Hans Kronbag, has done this with students, that food-associated cues will make students eat more. Mm-hmm. Um, you could demonstrate that in rats as well as mice. And our current project is uh, basically, how does the nucleus accumbens act or is we become activated when the when a mouse is in a uh, food associated context and it starts to lick way more sucrose than when it's in a neutral context not associated with food so i think what's i think what's what does the activity look like and uh, we use a tool called uh, fiber photometry it allows a viewing a real-time live broadcast of brain activity so we could see what happens when the animal approaches this sucrose delivery site, um, as well as what happens right after it licks the sucrose, and then try to make sense of what activity patterns drive this behavior. And it might explain why we tend to overeat in all the presence of these food cues. I was going to say that's uh, it's always interesting, or it's always nice when people choose a, a phenomenon that we can all relate to. I think you you know you mentioned things like that. I think everybody's been in that experience. Yeah. Where, you know, Christmas springs to mind, or I suppose <laughs> yeah. Thanksgiving for Americans, is that yeah. all those associations are formed with those sort of settings where there's always uh-huh. lots of food, and you always yeah. have more than you need to. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, and those cues definitely invigorate it when, I don't know, you see other people eating it looking happy, or this, you smell the turkey, or you see the chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it just, it, it does promote that behavior more and more. Yeah. Um, and it's quite important in this society now where, you know, you have a lot of fast food establishments, for instance, with very distinct cues, like the McDonald's Golden Arches, 
Um, is that a copyright infringement? <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but they they obviously have very distinct contexts inside of McDonald's or in Burger King, mm-hmm. and I always wondered, you know, does that actually promote you to eat more mm-hmm. <laughs> once you're there, or you see their advertisements? Um, yeah, definitely. So that's one of the projects. Another project is about how um, something called environmental enrichment. Um, which is basically giving animals a much larger cage, more cognitive and physical stimulation, like giving toys, more tunnels, more room. They have to look for their own food. Um, basically how that kind of enhanced cognitive and physical stimulation, just briefly for a day, can reduce their reactivity to food-associated cues. So we've shown that even a day of that can reduce the amount of sucrose they seek out when they're presented with these cues. That normally motivates them to look for more sucrose. Um, we recently found that that same enrichment reduces the amount of sucrose consumption. So they drink less sucrose, and it's interesting because in humans, even brief physical activity, like 15 minutes on a treadmill, or even cognitive activities like 10, 15 minutes of Tetris, can reduce food cravings. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So even the NHS would say if you want to reduce cravings, I don't know, do something active. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go read a book, go walk, go listen to music. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that stimulation which reduces the drive of those cravings, maybe as well as how you process stimuli related to food. So our postdoc, Kate Peters, is her role is to try to find out in this area called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is involved in motivation, how is that? How is the activity of that area changing uh, once an animal experiences that enriched environment and it's presented with a cue? I suppose yeah. that has uh, implications for, like you say, with the NHS, that has implications for kind of public health initiatives and things like that. In that, if people are, you know, struggling, you know, have sort of obsessive or, or well, people are addicted let's say, or, or have mm-hmm. or cravings for, you know, lots of different things. I suppose that's a, there's, there's a, there's a germ of an idea there of potential ways to help alleviate those cravings in terms of activity or things like that. It might, might help form some underlying basis for, for treatments. Perhaps. I think so. I mean, it's, we, I think a sedentary life, for example, is probably what is behind some of the, the said, say, excessive food consumption, for instance. Um, and I think just having more of those moments where you can kind of engage in different activities, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, somehow being enriched <laughs> might certainly help reduce some cravings and perhaps somehow even reduce stress in some in some people. So definitely there's a lot of health imp- implications for this. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm always interested when I speak to people... Um, who do research in, in life sciences because um, often there's a there's a sort of there's a drive for people to try and find cures for things yes. you know, pe- people people like people like studying disease mm-hmm. because they like the idea of you know they're going to yeah. cure xyz yeah um and i'm interested when whenever i speak to people that study um or <clears throat> study things relating to psychiatric disease yeah. um things like depression mm-hmm. uh, or or addiction in yeah. this case um because it's always an interesting question, you know, do you, is there, would you say you're more motivated in an attempt to try and 
cure in air quotes mm-hmm. sort of addiction or yeah. addictive behaviors or, mm-hmm. or are you more interested in the, the studying of it to potentially lead to things like that or, or is your drive more I want to try and understand it so I can help treat people yeah I mean definitely I do realize the wider picture that there are some public health issues um, however I think in my lifetime I at most I can try to uh, reveal or generate fundamental knowledge that helps us better solve these problems. Um, my, our former department head at the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, Roy Wise, he learned about improved brain behavior. He was doing a lot of dopamine research in the 70s. He said, he told us young researchers, at most in your scientific career, your work will become one line in the textbook. Mm-hmm. As in, it, it's a very conservative process until some many people replicate what you do and say, all right, 10 labs see the same thing. I think we can write this in a textbook that this is a robust, predictable phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So being realistic like that, I don't think I could, you know, it's not that you can, within five years, you say, I do this research and there's a wonder drug. Everybody's cured of their food cravings mm-hmm. and everybody's happy. Because, yeah. I think progress in medicine like that, especially related to psychiatry, to the brain conditions, where you have a very complicated circuit that's more complicated than computer, will take more time to really resolve. I think that it won't be just a single pill that you take and your your your, your condition is treated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I I agree, and I think yeah. that I think you can people can end up in into trouble when they sort of focus on or pe- when people start to think that they should be interested in yeah. when people are interested in something purely to, as an attempt to try and mm-hmm. because they want to cure it or fix it yeah. know, I think that especially in neuroscience that can lead you into trouble because the chance of curing things like this that are so complicated mm-hmm. is very is a, is, a, is a difficult thing to define especially yeah. with psychiatric disease where mm-hmm. you know there, there are already cures in yeah. psychotherapy and things like that um, I'm always interested to speak to people who study these things because it's interesting to hear from a scientific perspective from, a, from someone yeah. active in the field <laughs> what they think about the kind of balance there between yeah. trying to alleviate people's suffering but also recognising that that is a difficult thing and there are other ways to do that not through medicine sort of thing yeah I mean it's you have to be one has to be realistic of how slow the development of these things is until from so called bench to bedside mm-hmm. <laughs> approach of drug discovery to, to really delivering these drugs um, I once applied for a job at a, a pharmaceutical company Solvay which is now I think defunct um, I one person I talked to said don't get your hopes up too high. I've been working in this company for 30 years and only one drug has made it to the market. Wow. So just be realistic, yeah. Um, so enjoy the discovery process um, that you are revealing something interesting about a complex system and that humanity somehow learns from that and we benefit. And perhaps as a result, that can lead to something much better. Mm. And I guess the... It is true for things like, you know, just the initial studies on action potential. That was, it's just purely fundamental work, but it helped us understand how 
we sense the world. This is how information is transmitted along an axon, um, that it's electricity. Um, we, and if you think about it, there's more recent studies showing that you can alter electrical activity in the spine, for example, to help people restore movements. But I don't think Hodgkin and Huxley were thinking about that probably at that time, but I don't know, slowly but surely knowledge builds up and now we can actually create something better. And we see that for the mRNA vaccines as well, the initial discoveries of mRNA, um, delivering mRNA to cells and to the vaccine. So yeah, it's, it's a slow process, but yeah. That shouldn't be yeah. discouraging to people. No, know, no, def definitely not. I think it's quite a noble thing to contribute to science, to better understand the world, to generate curiosity in the world. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, I can't remember the, the full analogy, but it's a bit like, you know, you're planting seeds that you'll never see fully grow to their yeah. full height, but you know that one day someone will do. And so it's kind of like a, it's quite noble in that sense that you're leaving something for the future, even if you won't fully see the full sort of, you can't predict the full extent of what you've sort of set in motion, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to just do it because generation after generation, things might get better.